Welcome to Good Employment Chatter, the podcast of the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. In this season, each and every week, we'll be speaking about equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be providing key legal updates, getting practical advice from industry experts and spreading more awareness on the good employment practices that are going to make Greater Manchester fairer, more inclusive and with equal opportunity for all. I'm your host, Ian MacArthur, so let's get on and into the episode. This week, the topic of focus will be on the LGBT community. Good employers will understand that it's important to ensure all employees feel welcome, respected and represented at work. They also realise the benefits of inclusion, driving better individual, business and organisational outcomes. However, more than a third of LGBT staff have hidden their sexuality or gender identity at work for fear of discrimination. It's important that employers create the kind of workplace where people feel open to bring their whole selves to work and not fear for the repercussions of just being themselves. Today's main discussion will be on how workplaces can be inclusive to transgender colleagues and why employers should provide a focus to this. We then move on to speak about the definitions you need to know and how employers can overcome some common barriers in the workplace for LGBT people. To begin, let's move on to our employment law update of the week, given to us as always by Adam Haynes, partner at Aaron and Partners. Thank you, Ian. As you've mentioned, gender reassignment is one of nine protected characteristics covered by the Equality Act. The others being, we're probably all well aware, age, disability, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, belief, sex and sexual orientation. The term gender reassignment, which is this specific reference in the legislation, is actually widely criticised and regarded as being outdated. It's where possible for trans. Under the Equality Act, it's unlawful for an employer to, and, and these are on the whole pretty standard based on the other areas, but there are a few things to be alert to. Discrimination directly by treating, for example, a job applicant or employee less favourable than others because of gender reassignment. Discriminate by treating an employee less favourably in relation to absences from work because of gender reassignment. So this sort of situation would be where an employer treats an employee less favourably than it would have done so had an employee been absent for some other reason and it was not reasonable to do so. The next one is discriminate indirectly by applying a provision criterion or practice regularly referred to as a PCP that disadvantages trans job applicants or employees without there being any objective justification. Subject a job applicant or employee to harassment related to gender reassignment, harassment of sexual nature, or less favourable treatment because they reject or submit to harassment. And finally, victimise a job applicant or employee because they have made or intend to make a discriminatory complaint. The only one really being particularly different there is the absence-related discrimination. However, I think it's important then to, to drill down into this in a little bit more detail and what actually is the definition of gender reassignment because it only applies to a person proposing to undergo 
who is undergoing or has undergone a process or part of a process for the purpose of reassigning the person's sex by changing physiological or other attributes of sex. The Quality Act requires that a person should have at least proposed to undergo gender reassignment. It does not require such a proposal to be irrevocable. And as such, people who start the gender reassignment process but then stop will still have the protection under the Equality Act. The Equality Act was previously reformed and the requirement for medical supervision was removed. There is no need for an individual to have undergone medical supervision or surgery in order to fall within definition. However, there's still widespread criticism in relation to this definition, that it doesn't go far enough. Hopefully that gives you a, a very much a summary of what protection is in place currently and some of the gaps or issues that arise in relation to it. What I also wanted to move on and talk about is there's been a recent landmark case, Stata, that was actually in the media in the last few days. This doesn't actually directly deal with discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment, but it does deal with issues around this topic and beliefs. So in this situation, Maya Frostata lost her job after tweeting that transgender women could not change their biological sex. And a few days ago, her claim was upheld that she was unfairly discriminated against because of her gender critical beliefs. Although this case focuses on beliefs, as I said before, rather than gender reassignment, the decision impacts on the debate over trans rights and the rights of those with gender critical views. The facts of this case were for status contract was not renewed after colleagues claimed that some of her tweets about sex and gender were transphobic. They were also deemed to be offensive and the employees were made to feel uncomfortable. As such, she brought claims for direct discrimination and harassment because of her gender critical beliefs. The EAT at a preliminary hearing found initially the employment tribunal dealt with this matter as a preliminary point of whether gender critical beliefs were capable of falling within a belief in accordance with the Equality Act. Initially, the Employment Tribunal made a decision that it was not capable of being a belief, but the EAT overturned that decision, and I'll explain why. The EAT found that for status belief in gender identity was a protected philosophical belief. It overturned previous decision that for status view was of an absolutist nature and incompatible with human dignity and the fundamental rights of others. When the EAT reached a conclusion, they looked at what's known as the Granger criterion, which is a case that defines how you look at beliefs and what it needs to entail. And they firstly concluded that this was a low bar. In the Employment Tribunal's decision, the reason they rejected that it was a belief was specifically on this principle. And it said that gender critical beliefs were not worthy of respect in a democratic society and as such weren't capable of being belief. However, the EAT looked at this in, in further detail and disagreed. And they stated that philosophical belief would only be excluded from the scope of the protection in this situation if it was a grave violation of human rights principles and seeking to destroy those rights. For example, that would be a belief in torture or a belief akin to Nazism. The fact that the claimant's beliefs were found by some to be offensive, shocking and disturbing did not mean that it fell outside of the protection. 
ruling that it was not for a court to evaluate the merits of any beliefs. When considering whether gender-critical beliefs were worthy of respect, there were two main factors they actually looked at in that point. Firstly, the fact that gender-critical views were widely shared suggested that they should be considered carefully and not condemned out of hand. And secondly, the belief that sex is immutable and binary was, in fact, the current position under UK law. Those are the two main factors when drilling down on this. And the reason I wanted to discuss this case, although slightly off kilter with the previous points at the outset of this episode, is that the decision is going to have wide ramifications for trans rights and also how gender critical views are going to be dealt with. I think, obviously, how these views are expressed and dealt with and policed is going to also be highly relevant when looking at each situation. But thanks a lot for today and hopefully it's a useful introduction. Today's main conversation will focus in on how employers can be more trans-inclusive, providing the right support from recruitment through to employment and retention. Many trans employers face challenges in the workplace that differ from lesbian, gay and bi experiences and need particular support. And to understand what support is needed, it's so important that we have these conversations, that we listen to lived experience and that we continue to address the issues. This conversation will be led by Tara Hewitt, Associate Director of Inclusion and Engagement at the Northern Care Alliance NHS Foundation Trust. Great to welcome you to the podcast, Tara. Be great to hear your insights on this issue. Thanks, Ian. It's a privilege to be here today hosting this conversation. As you said, my name's Tara Hewitt. My pronouns are she and her. I'm the Associate Director for Inclusion and Engagement at the Northern Care Alliance NHS Foundation Trust. And it's really great that we're going to be exploring together the inequalities and the issues around making sure that we have trans equality right within our workplaces across the region. There's often a lack of confidence when we talk about trans inclusion and often we haven't addressed the issues that we see across our society that overlap and impact on our workplaces but we've got a real privilege today because we're going to be talking to two individuals who will be sharing their lived experiences of transitioning and coming out at work as a trans person in Greater Manchester and hopefully there'll be a lot for us to learn and replicate across all of our organisations. Our panel today includes Ollie Petrovic, onboarding specialist at the Cooperative Bank, and Stephen Woods, software developer at Also Trader UK. It's excellent to be talking with you both today. So to start with you, Ollie, it would be great if you could share some experience with us of transitioning while working for the Cooperative Bank. What did you learn from this experience that you'd like to share with the listeners? Sure. Thanks, Tara. So as Tara said, my name's Ollie Petrovic. My pronouns are he, him, and I work for the Cooperative Bank. I've been working at the bank now for just over five years. And I guess that the start of my transition started around the same time as my job started. So when I first joined the bank, I just started coming out to friends and family. And I was still quite female presenting, I guess. When I started, I was upfront from the beginning. I told everybody that I was trans, that my pronouns were he, him. And as far as I was concerned, 
that was all that was needed. It kind of wasn't. <laughs> um, a lot of the people that I started to work with had never even met a trans person before. A lot of people didn't know how to react, didn't know how to approach me. I'll talk to anybody about anything. But I kind of found that a lot of people were afraid to talk to me. And the more that I got to know other people, it came about that people were afraid to talk because they were scared they were going to slip up. They were scared that they were going to call me she. In some cases, there was a couple of people who had actually gone to school with and they wouldn't speak to me because they were worried that they were going to dead name me. So dead naming is calling me by my original birth name. It was kind of difficult in a way to make friends and feel comfortable, but that soon stopped. It stopped quite quickly where people were approaching me and asking me questions and that's fine. You know, there was a lot of, oh, well, how do you know? And what was your name and, and all, all of that kind of thing. And it can be very frustrating and very repetitive, but you kind of see where people are coming from with it. From an employer perspective, the bank was brilliant. Straight off, I was approached by HR to have a very informal meeting with them about what I thought people should know. So what I thought HR should know, what I thought my manager should know. And an actual transgender policy was drawn up, which is fantastic. You know, that's still in use like five years later. A lot of the time it can be, as I said, repetitive because you're constantly coming out, especially at the beginning. If somebody meets me now, today, I'm a man, as far as I'm concerned, but face value, that is how I'm taken. At the start, when you're just getting to know who you are, when you're taking the biggest step of your life, you need your employer on your side. You need to know that they have your back and that you can be who you are without concerning yourself that people aren't going to accept you in the workplace or you know you you're going to find it difficult and and I think that a lot of the time it is people being afraid people being scared to ask that can stop people approaching and moving forward with it one of the really good things that I found was that we have colleague networks so we have our LGBTQ plus network, which is proud together. And as soon as I discovered that, within like a few days of being part of the bank, I was emailing them, I was joining them, I was getting involved with everything. I'm now one of the committee members for Proud Together. So I represent the trans umbrella. We do a lot of educating people, like I write a blog every couple of weeks, really, to talk about different things and raise awareness because I think it's a huge thing that, yes, people may work with somebody that's transgender, but there's a lot more 
that they need to know rather than just being at face value, like I say. One of the things you've touched on, Ollie, is points around that anxiety, that nervousness that people maybe have had of having a conversation with you and how that might have changed and actually there might have been more confidence as you sort of shared your journey. It sounded like that confidence was building. Is that correct? And what do you think led to that? Is there any takeaways for other organisations thinking about how they develop the confidence of their staff around trans issues? Yeah, totally. So after being on one team for a few years, I moved teams and there was a conference call that was set up where I got to meet my new team because I'd be working remotely so I wouldn't get to meet them in person. And on the call, I introduced myself and I said to them, I said, think about the worst thing that you've ever been called, the worst name or the worst thing that anybody's ever said. Gave them a few moments and then I went back and said to them, imagine being called that every day. Imagine going into work and being called that. That's what misgendering feels like. That's what dead naming feels like. But then imagine that because you were so scared of calling somebody that, you wouldn't speak to them. Then imagine how that makes them feel. And I've got such a good response from that where people understood and got it. And I think it's super important for people to understand that we're not scary, not mean, just chill out, just talk, just have a conversation. Even if you think you're going to make an absolute fool of yourself for asking a trans person a certain question, if we don't want to answer you, we won't answer you. But we're not going to be nasty about it because it's all about educating. There was a real important takeaway that I think you shared about the need for your organisation to feel like they're on your side and you shared how it, it felt like the bank was on your side. I think that's a really important message for employers to, to hear but how did they get into that space? So what would it look like if I'm in a, a different organisation, if an employer's on the side of, of, of their trans or non-binary colleagues? Don't assume what we're going through. Ask us simple things like our pronouns. If we've changed our names, make sure that other people know that. Make sure that it's communicated. Communication is definitely key with these things. Just keep the conversation going. Always keep updated and make sure that if somebody, for example, if, if they're going to be starting hormone therapy, that you know that that is going to happen if they're comfortable with telling you so that you know where they are on their journey. You know what the steps are. You have an understanding of they might need a day off to go and get a train to the gender clinic, but they might not want to tell the rest of their team why they're having that day off. Communication's key, but so is confidence. We've got to trust you and... We're becoming a whole other person, and that is huge. So we need the support. Ollie, some real powerful points there, focusing around the power of lived experience and the need for more people to hear the reality and, and the stories that, 
that many trans colleagues can share, but they need to listen and need to that listening turning into trust. And, and like you said, showing that you're on your side is really important for employers to demonstrate. I think that's a real clear message for people listening to the podcast today. I wanted to, to move on to you, Stephen, if that's okay, and to talk me through a little bit about your journey and what you think organisations should be doing to become more inclusive for trans and non-binary colleagues. Sure. Thanks, Tara. Yeah, I'm Stephen. My pronouns are they, them. I actually wanted to start by saying thank you, Ollie. That's an amazing story that you have. And I want to start by coming back to something that you said, Ollie. It was around people not knowing how to react when a trans person comes out, you know, starts to transition at work or maybe has already transitioned and joins a team and whatever. So I used to say uh, to the people that I worked with, how ready are you? How ready are you for someone who's trans to join the team? How ready are you for someone already in the team to come out? And I'd say these things, not thinking that it might be me. And I had previously thought about my gender. and I thought, no, I'm not trans. And I was thinking that when I had a much narrower perspective on what it means to be trans, the idea that you can be a trans man or a trans woman and there's no in-between or nothing outside of that binary. And so it was a couple of years ago, actually through an act of allyship, as I was reading more about trans people, reading the arguments that anti-trans philosophers and other public figures were spouting a couple of years ago and still are today. It was in reading those things that I started to realise that it was a discomfort that I've always had with being a boy, being a man. And realising that actually has a name and it means something. As I said, I'd already thought I wasn't trans. And still today, I don't know whether I would call myself trans. It feels like I don't deserve that label. But I'm non-binary and under a more broader inclusive definition of trans non-binary comes under that umbrella. And so sometimes I say I have transness, even if I don't feel comfortable saying that I'm trans. So yeah, I was telling the people that I worked with, you should think about how you will handle it. If somebody comes out, you should be prepared to feel uncomfortable around pronouns and stuff. You will probably worry about getting them wrong. And I gave my advice, which was to practice talking to that person when they're not there, when you're on your own in your home. Just get used to saying their pronouns, saying their name, and it will become second nature. That's how I felt about it. But then when I realized that I was non-binary, I had to go through that process of coming out again. I came out as gay when I was 13, 14, and having to go through all of that again was daunting. But I feel very fortunate that at Autotrader, my colleagues were my support. It was my colleagues that I was talking to, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff. They were also my social circle and my whole support network and being able to speak to individuals in the company about it wasn't even that I was necessarily coming out at first it was that I was talking through what was going on in my mind and I talked about how I was considering using they them pronouns but maybe I'd start with they he because I acknowledge that I've grown up in this world as a boy as a man I've been socialized as a man and somebody calling me he isn't going to feel jarring 
at least at first it wouldn't and I wouldn't get upset about it and it's been a sort of long process of coming out to more people in the company and I sit here today saying my pronouns are they and them. Being able to do that gradually and without feeling pressured by anyone. I don't owe it to anyone to say this is the box that I fit in and this is how you can understand me. And for the people around me to not try to put me into a box has felt really sort of liberating. And that is how the whole thing's felt, like liberation. Like I'm so much more comfortable in my body now understanding myself as non-binary. I never expected that to happen. One of my key pieces of advice to anyone listening much like Ollie said, is around this being afraid of getting things wrong. You mustn't be too afraid of getting things wrong that you don't do anything. We learn by making mistakes. We do that in primary school. And then for the rest of our lives, you've got to make a mistake to understand what went wrong and do better. And it's how you handle having made a mistake that makes the difference. Are you humble? Do you acknowledge that you did something that may have hurt someone's feelings and do you move on from that and learn how to do better or do you get caught up in this sense of oh, now I feel like a bad person and the person that I've offended has now got to make me feel like I'm not a bad person has got to console me even though I hurt them so yeah don't be afraid be curious about people in a respectful way do ask questions like it was heartbreaking to hear Ollie about what must have been a very isolating and lonely experience with people not even wanting to talk to you and you've got to listen to the people around you and be led by what they tell you. I think allyship is really important. At Order Trader for LGBT History Month, we did these LGBT ally pledges where people wrote something that they were going to do to support the LGBT community, whether that was inside Order Trader or outside in the wider community. And we wrote them on cards and we stuck them on the wall and those people who made pledges, it was around 10% of the company. They all received these very in-your-face rainbow lanyards, which I think is great because it's obvious that they're there. You know, the lanyards are really striking and it makes it clear that the people around you are allies and you can be comfortable being yourself within the walls of Autotrader. And I can safely say that I feel more comfortable being myself at Autotrader than I do in most places in public, in wider society. Stephen, thank you for sharing so much that I'm going to summarise and get back to as we sort of wrap up the podcast in a second. But there's just a couple of points that I wanted to delve a little bit more into, if that's okay. You were sharing really interestingly around how your workplace felt like the really supportive environment whilst you were and maybe actually experiencing inequalities outside of work and and one of those things that we often discuss in equality circles is the concept of weathering and this idea is if you're from an underserved community that faces inequalities that there's all sorts of things that might be going on in our lives that might be impacting on us and at work we often don't counterbalance that we often don't do something to to put that right so it sounds like in in your workplace you absolutely had a supportive environment to sort of counteract maybe some of that weathering that you were experiencing but how can other organizations get into that space not everybody's already there what would you say the sort of steps an organization could take to end up getting into the sort of same place that you found yourself feeling like you had that support and feeling like it was supporting you from that weathering you may be experiencing outside of work good question i think there needs to be some knowledge already there 
within the business about how to be inclusive of people in general and how to be trans-inclusive. So if you don't already have that knowledge, then I guess the first thing to do is to seek that out. There are organisations who you can get in to provide trans-specific training around inclusion. Gendered Intelligence is one that we've had in Autotrader and had a great session from them. The LGBT Foundation is another organisation that I think are pretty close to our office that we're in talks with to have in to support. I think it's important for workplaces to do a review of the policies they have in place and make sure that the wording of those policies is trans-inclusive and that they're looking at things in the environment, things like the gender neutral toilets that we have in place at Autotrader that genuinely make everyone feel more comfortable going to the toilet. These are completely isolated, separate rooms for going to the toilet. And I'm sure everyone much prefers going to the toilet in one of those. So, you know, looking at your space and can you support things like gender neutral toilets in your offices? Do the forms that your employees have to fill in when they join the company, do they have the the titles and the sort of gender identity options that allow them to, you know, tell you who they are. And finally, I think workplaces should also look to their employees. It's important that marginalised people aren't the people who always have to do the work. But if you can support the growth of internal employee networks that exist so that marginalised people can support one another, like an LGBT network, you'll find that those very passionate people will drive forward a lot of that understanding that you need. So what can you do to support those networks as they are created, as they grow, and to platform them and the, the things that they want to do and the change that they want to see in the company? Thank you so much. We've had so much in such a short space of time from you both, but I've got one more ask if that's okay. It's really important that we give our listeners a takeaway to think actually this is the thing that we're going to go away straight away and hopefully look to implement after today. So if you were to sort of sum up the most important piece of advice that you'd like people listening to take away and to start to implement in their organisations, what would that be? And I'm going to come to you first, Ollie. I guess communication is key. Talk to us, ask us. If you're unsure of something, ask us. Because we might have the answer for ourselves, but we might have the answer for every trans person, every non-binary person, any member of the LGBTQ community. But we can certainly give a perspective And we can certainly help to educate. And I think you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep asking. And we've got to keep educating. I think that's a really great piece of advice, opening that conversation with your trans and non-binary colleagues is a real important first step. So thank you for sharing that as a a key takeaway. Stephen, what's your key message to sort of wrap up? Similarly to Ollie, it's about learning. Learn about trans people, you know, whatever form that takes, whether it's getting external companies in to provide the training that you need or learning from the trans colleagues you already have. Get ready to support your current and future trans colleagues and make the changes that they need in the workplace to be included.
equally good advice there from you, Stephen, as well, that learning, that continuous learning as well. It's not a destination, but it's it's something that we should all continuously commit to. I'd like to thank you both for sharing your lived experiences and journey with us all today. I probably apologise as well that we just didn't have enough time to probably dig deeper. There's probably so much we could have got into conversations with. And I know that there'll be opportunities for us to, to do that in the future, to keep that conversation going across the system. For me, really listening to you both about the power of lived experience, making sure we're listening to our trans and non-binary colleagues, making sure organisations are taking steps to do that in a structured way to show that they're on their trans and non-binary colleagues' side, really valuing the diversity of gender and recognising that diversity in its broadest sense. You're so right, Stephen, that when we talk about trans, it often just gets narrowed down into a particular lens. I've had conversations before with people that said, well, we'll start with trans and we'll maybe move on to non-binary as if it's sort of a spectrum that you sort of step onto as the next level. That's the phrase that really rings well with me is that we get to define our labels and our labels don't define us. So really powerful hearing you share that conversation with people today. And just wanted to encourage everybody listening and all of our organisations that have taken time to come and really engage around trans inclusion in the workplace to hear how important this is, how important it is for the well-being of our people, how important it is so that we start tackling the inequalities that we know that our trans and non-binary colleagues see. But the most important thing is growing your confidence to act and having that intention and taking that first step to say this is important to your organisation and it's something that you're going to start to work on more. So hopefully it's been as powerful to you as it's been to me facilitating two fantastic panellists today. And I look forward to talking to people in the future too. Thanks, everybody. Take care. And now it's time for our opinion piece. Today we're talking to Carl Austin Behan, pronouns he, him. Carl recently received the OBE, so congratulations. Thank you very much. So the wonderful pictures of you down in, in Windsor. Carl is the LGBT advisor to the mayor of Greater Manchester, and he'll be exploring ways today in which employers can make their workplace more inclusive to members of the LGBT community. So thanks, Carl, for joining us. It's great to have you in the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, it's been great to have you on. Much of your career, you spent supporting LGBT issues. So I'm really, well, I think we're all really keen to hear your thoughts on this topic today. And perhaps to start, it would be great if you could explore some of the key definitions and terms that employers should be aware of when seeking to engage with the community. Yeah, no, that, that's fine. Because I think... I think for some employers, even the acronym LGBT can be a minefield at times, especially over the years it's grown. And depending on the individual saying it, it can go from anything from LGBT to LGBTQQIA+. So, so let's start with the common terminology. So L is for lesbian, and that's a woman who's emotionally, romantically and or sexually attracted to women. And I find that more now with, with the older uh, women. I don't find many young females describe themselves as lesbian anymore. Gay, the G, is the individuals who are emotionally, physically, and or sexually attracted to members of the same sex and or gender. And again, that's more commonly used when referring to men who are attracted to another man, but also applies to women as well. And it's become an umbrella term, really, uh, used to refer to anyone who doesn't identify as heterosexual. 
B is bisexual, a person who is emotionally, romantically and or sexually attracted to people of their genders and other genders. And it doesn't have to be an equal split and it's often shortened to bi. T for transgender is an umbrella term to describe someone who identifies as a different gender than the one they had assigned at birth. Transgender people may describe themselves using one or more of a wide range of terms, including gender fluid, non-binary, agender, trans man, trans woman, and it's often just shortened to, to trans. Q, in some cases, is queer, and in other cases, it's questioning. Now, queer, historically, was a derogatory term for LGBTQ plus people, but recently it's been reclaimed by some, not all, but especially younger people, as an umbrella term to describe anyone who is not heterosexual. So heterosexual comes under the term of straight and or cisgender. And now I've mentioned cisgender, it's good to explain that that's the person who identifies as the gender identity and biological sex they were assigned at birth. So in simple terms, it's a person who isn't trans and it's shortened to cis. Intersex is a person born with variations in their sexual characteristics, including hormones, chromosomes, and physical anatomy that exists outside the male and female binary. It's a more inclusive term than the derogatory hermaphrodite. Asexual is someone who identifies and experiences little or no sexual attraction to others and or has a lack of interest in sexual relationship behavior. And being asexual is not the same as being celibate. Pansexual is a person, and this is a newish word to people, so pansexual is a person who is emotionally, romantically, and or sexually attracted to people regardless of their gender or sex. And this attraction doesn't have to be equally split or across genders or sexes, and it's often shortened to pan. Now, bisexually and pansexually are often confused. While both are very similar, and some people identify as both, the key difference is they have a different history and communities. And what I find is by going to schools now and doing educational topics, and I talk about the LGBTQ plus spectrum, we're talking about different sexualities and different genders. What you do find is a lot of younger people now are saying that they are pansexual rather than bisexual. A bit like what I said before about for lesbians, a lot of school people are now either gay women, gay girls, pansexuals, or they, they address themselves as queer because they feel that they fit that within the whole umbrella. And then you've got non-binary, which is an umbrella term which comes under the trans term, but non-binary is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity does not fit the man or woman binary, and non-binary identities are varied and include people who identify with some aspects of binary identities, while others reject them entirely. So that's just a quick sort of overview of some of the terminology that, that I think some people do find a bit of a minefield when sometimes they become so many letters in the acronym that they get sort of a bit bombarded by it. Carl, that was a wonderful summary. And what I took from it, it is complex, I think. And many employers will want to do the right thing, but will tread carefully around the language. So that's really helpful. I'm presuming there's some resources that people could refer to as well outside of the podcast. Yeah, there's plenty of resources and there's plenty of glossaries. And I know that sort of people like the LGBT Foundation, Stonewall, the Proud Trust, any of those organizations, they will have a glossary within dead easy to find on their pages. Thanks for that, Carl. I think the other thing I took from it was it's about perception and it's about the individual's perception. 
of themselves. And it's understanding that that's really key to how an employer engages with them, the community. Absolutely, because it's it's the individual, you know, we don't all fit under one umbrella. If we have a conversation and we've got a group of LGBTQ plus people in a room, you're going to have a complete, like you would with heterosexuals, you you know, you have, you have your, your difference of opinions and your different views. But again, it is that whole thing that everyone needs to be treated as an individual and respected as an individual. And it shouldn't make a difference about well, their gender or sexuality, it's about the individual, about what they can bring to the workplace and that they can be their true authentic self in the workplace. Absolutely key, Carl. Thanks for making that point. And it may relate to this next question I've got for you. So what do you think are the biggest barriers to the LGBT community when seeking, first of all, fair and inclusive recruitment, but then perhaps also progression in the workplace? What are the biggest barriers? Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes. So across society, it's normalized beliefs that create the barriers. It's the fact that, you know, I still think that some businesses are scared of thinking that they might say the wrong thing or that, that they might offend somebody. And I think sometimes it's okay to get it wrong and it's okay to, to say things or to not have things in place, but ask the question and then learn from it. You know, when, when it comes to the workplace culture for people and, and social aspect of, of that business, and also the initial image, you know, when you've got your portfolio, you're, you're sort of showcasing your business. Is it just a picture of white cis males on the front of that, on, the, on that glossary and that brochure? You know, it needs to be very diverse. Our application forms LGBTQ plus friendly. Business needs to have a clear diversity and inclusion strategy and policies in place. Communications need to constantly use inclusive language to promote values of the organization. We've seen during COVID the fact that the amount of people who are LGBTQ+, who may have been out already, but then because they've ended up going back into a shared home or they're having to just sort of self-isolate with families who they may not be out with. So it's having that whole sort of, you've been withdrawn again, which has an impact on people's mental health, people's well-being. And it's about the fact of, I think sometimes just making sure you're not as a business you're not just doing it as a tick box exercise sometimes because i think sometimes people like to think that we're going to do things for lgbtq plus communities but it has to be for the right reason if we're looking at application forms or when people are applying for jobs you know sometimes that this thing's missing on there when it just says male female you know and it doesn't sort of say trans male trans female rather not say giving your sexuality i think it's important that they're on application forms And I know that, you know, I'm going to use the LGBT Foundation because on their jobs page, they have a really simple sort of terminology. It just says, we welcome applicants from everyone, irrespective of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, ethnicity, faith and religion, disability and age. But as ethnic minority groups, members of the trans community and religious and faith groups are currently underrepresented across the organization, we would encourage applicants from members of these groups. However, appointments will be based on merit and merit alone. And I think that's a really important thing that even though I know employers want to make sure that they're they're sort of trying to reach out to the LGBTQ plus community, as they are with people from disability groups, as they are from women, as they are from the BAME community, it's about making sure that you make everyone feel as welcome and as truly accepted to fill in the application form as possible. No, you're absolutely right. There's parallels here, Carl, with the the ban the box around whether you've had a criminal record or not. There is. 
we encourage employers not to ask that question at all at application stage, because if it's important, then it will come out later on. But at least you're opening the door for people stepping through and engaging with the employer and believing that they are included in what the, 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 the vision of the employer's workforce is. And that comes back to leadership and, and culture, doesn't it? It does. And I think, you know, if I'm honest, I think something that's going to come back by a lot of people in the bum in a few years time is when we're looking at neurodiversity in, in a sense, because people are siloed off. If they, if they don't fit the stereotype norm of work and the fact that they're, what they're doing at the job, they may be brilliant at the work they're doing, but at the same time, not given that opportunity because they may have suffered from some mental health, but at the same time, they may be brilliant at what they're doing, but just not fitting with the society norm, if that makes sense. Absolutely. We're featuring that in another episode of the podcast, but absolutely right, because many of these issues interplay, you know, the multi-sectoral issues, multifactorial issues come together. It doesn't, even if we're looking at people who, who say they suffer from dyslexia or if they have a, a nervous a sort of twitch and things like that, and they, they, if they can do the job and they, they can do it well, then they're the best person to do that job. And it shouldn't really matter about what all the other things around that, but it's, it's making sure that they have the opportunities. You know, sometimes I look at application forms and when it says, oh yeah, you must have a degree in this or you must, you know, you must have a degree in that. You're thinking, actually, you're discriminating right from the start. Just because you're saying you must have a degree doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, I left school with one GCSE in drama and I've, I've managed to do well. Yes, I wish I'd probably read more at school and I wish I'd sort of done certain things more at school, but at the same time, it hasn't stopped me. And I know so many people who have degrees the degree means absolutely nothing in that in when they've actually gone to do a job that they didn't do the degree in. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct there, Carl. There's many, many stories like the one you've just said in terms of you know when people reach their full potential. It happens at different stages for many, many people. And we all get there, don't we? Carl, if you were to give employers uh, who are listening to this one piece of advice about how to engage with the community, what would that be? I'm going to be cheeky and when you say one piece of advice, I can sort of make this spread over a, a few little segments because I think the one piece of advice is education and training. So training is fundamental to increasing awareness and improving knowledge within the organization, but also raising visibility of the existence of the LGBT staff that you have. Also celebrating the LGBT staff that you've got by having events and awareness days such as when we've got LGBT History Month, when you've got Pride Month, when we've got International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. Fit that into your calendar of events and get people to come in and to do talks. Let the staff sort of come up with, with initiatives themselves. Let them set up a staff network. And I know sometimes, you know, I always think it's great when we've got a, an LGBT group, when we've got a disability group, we've got a BAME group, we've got women's group. And, and, and I think it's great that we've got that. I'd love to see with the intersectionality over, over a time that we just have a minorities group because where does the black lesbian in a wheelchair go? Because we, we've got so many different groups for that individual. And I think it's about making sure that everyone feels that there's a space for them. One other key aspect I think that any business can do or anyone as an individual can do is to using pronouns. Now, I'm not saying that businesses should make everyone use their pronouns, you know, in email signatures and, and when they meet people. But I think the pronouns make a massive difference when for other people, especially for the trans non-binary community, that when we're using the correct pronouns for people and we're not misgendering people, so that when I always talk, it's always, hi, my name is Carlos Dibian, pronouns he, him, his. For those people in the room, 
they feel that they're actually being listened to and they're acknowledged. And for people, I, I'd always recommend if you don't know what someone's pronouns are, always use they and them, first of all, and let them come across because it's about giving full acceptance to who they are as well as who you are. And it's a simple thing, your pronouns. And, it, and if you're comfortable to have it in your email signature, when we pick up the phone, we shouldn't automatically think just because we hear a voice that it's a, it's a male or it's a female, it's a mister and it's a missus. When we're having an event and we're, we're doing a conference, don't stand on the stage and go, hi guys or ladies and gentlemen, you know, distinguished guests fits in with everyone. Folks fits in with everyone. It's not a, it's not a gender criteria. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Well, I love the education part. I think the education part is part of what we're trying to do here today, but clearly something that employers need to engage with and the celebration element. Absolutely. And there's loads of opportunities to do that if they're minded to. Absolutely. And education doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to bring people in from paying thousands of pounds for this training course just to sort of do it. Education can be a case of just businesses themselves looking on the internet, getting some information, feeding something down and just sharing that within their weekly newsletter or their e-bulletin. Even just sort of, as you said before about terminology, even them simple things can be part of the initial stages of education. So it doesn't have to cost anything. And if you set up a staff network, they can do that themselves with very little resources. Well, I was just going to make the point, the educators are probably within your midst if you just give them enough space and time to do it. Carl, thank you so much for your contribution to uh, the podcast today and for your continued support to the Good Employment Charter. You've been uh, an absolute star from day one with the Charter and thanks for all your support. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Good Employment Chatter. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn for all the latest updates. Subscribe to stay tuned to our episodes and if you found this one valuable, please leave us a review and recommend it to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please get in touch for more information. We'll be posting new episodes every week, so make sure you tune in next time. Thank you.